Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church, now with readers in 193 countries. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Naaman in Gehazi, The Outsider In, The Insider Out, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 12, 2006. Last week, one of my five siblings chose not to attend my mother's funeral. After his divorce, my brother married an African-American woman, and he fretted whether our little church in small-town North Carolina would welcome them. I don't know if he was wise and perceptive in this regard, or perhaps maybe he projected his insecurities onto other people, but the threat of exclusion and marginalization as an outsider is a potent toxin for most all of us. No one wants to be an outsider. In his new book, The Faith of the Outsider, Exclusion and Inclusion in the Biblical Story, the Old Testament scholar Frank Spina makes a close reading of this insider-outsider motif in the Bible. He begins with the unpopular reminder that it is impossible to ignore the presence of what scholars call the scandal of particularity throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, for example, Israel alone is God's elect people. We read in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Israel is not only God's special insider community, as Spina notes, it's the only insider community. All other nations need not apply. Similarly, in the New Testament, the early Christians confessed that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. John 14:6. If you excise this insider theme from the biblical narrative, you would end up with a slender Bible indeed. But that's only one part of the story, and one that is that's significantly enriched by other elements of the plot. When God elected a single community, Israel, his intentions were categorically universal in scope, that in Abraham all peoples on earth will be blessed, Genesis 12:3. Those same early Christians who proclaimed Jesus as the only way also imagine heaven populated with a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Revelation 7-9. When we read the Bible carefully, we notice how often it features these prominent outsiders. This inclusion of outsider stories, Spina argues, is neither incidental nor haphazard in the biblical witness. These outsider stories often include a significant plot reversal in which the ostensible insider is cast in a negative light and the outsider is portrayed as superior in virtue and or faith. In his book, Spina considers seven of these stories where the outsider is mainlined and the insider is marginalized. Esau, Tamar, the story of incest, Rahab, a whore, Jonah, Ruth, a resident alien who remarries a Hebrew, the woman at the well in John 4 who had married five times, 
And then the lectionary passage for this week about Naaman in 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman epitomizes the quintessential outsider for several reasons. First, he was from pagan Aram, or Syria, a military officer of a major enemy of Israel. The narrator even praises Naaman in glowing terms. He was a valiant soldier, a great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded. Then he adds a stunning detail that makes you wonder what he was thinking. Through Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Aram. God gave victory to Israel's enemy through a pagan officer? Yes. And finally, Naaman had a skin disease, often wrongly translated as leprosy. This disease, as Spina notes, might have caused Naaman some medical problems, but his real complications were social, religious, and moral. For people with such impurities were stigmatized as ritually unclean and therefore excluded from God's community and its worship. Consider a contemporary analogy. Saddam was an Iraqi military general, praised by all as a valiant warrior and a great man. In fact, the Christian God had granted victory to Iraq through Saddam. This is not where the story of Naaman ends, but it is definitely where it begins. In search of healing, this great man, 2 Kings 5 verse 1, embarked on a state visit with opulent gifts to visit the king of Israel, a letter of commendation in hand only to encounter a nameless little girl from Israel who advised him to seek healing from the Hebrew prophet Elisha. The irony is unmistakable, and Naaman's response is predictable. When this anonymous Hebrew child instructed the renowned military officer not to seek help from the corridors of political power, but from a religious prophet who told him to wash himself seven times in the Jordan River, he was incensed. But Naaman eventually obeyed. He was healed, and then the plot thickens when he was finally converted. Now I know, said Naaman, that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. He then made a curious request to take dirt from Israel back to Aram, for I will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. Perhaps Naaman wanted to establish a portable, sacred space back home. Although back home in Aram, he continued to assist his master to worship in the temple of the deity Rimon, Naaman asked for advance forgiveness for that compromise and declared his fidelity to Israel's Yahweh. Naaman the outsider thus joined the insider community. A nameless little girl advised a great man, and the prophetic power of Elisha subverted social and political conventions. The story then ends with a tragic reversal when greed overtook Elisha's servant, Gehazi. He connived to obtain the gifts that Naaman had offered to Elijah, but which Elijah had refused. Gehazi the insider of Israel's prophet Elisha, was then struck with the skin disease that originally afflicted the pagan outsider 
military commander Naaman. The story that began with this disease ends with it, writes Spina, with the difference that its victims have been reversed. The Aramean outsider has become clean, and the Israelite insider has become unclean. In a word, presumption is the besetting sin and the chronic temptation of the insider. To our peril, we ignore, shun, and even vilify the outsider as strange, dangerous, and unclean. We smugly imagine that we possess the truth as few others do, rather than humbly ask God in his mercy that we might be transformed by his truth. Rather than considering solidarity with the lost, the lonely, and the outsider a privilege that enriches our lives, we construe the biblical narrative in a narcissistic manner to serve our own petty ends. The insider-outsider dynamic operates at many levels. My brother experienced it as racism. Ethnicity, what we might think is an important job, a prestigious school affiliation, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, gender, age, body image, and politics are all identities we embrace, personas that we construct to comfort ourselves that we are insiders and in turn to scapegoat others as outsiders. In this scenario, tragic self-delusion is never far away. We read in Luke chapter 18, verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like all other people. Other people we actively erase since they do not interest us, or we do not deign to consider them important enough to merit our attention. The novelist Ralph Ellison masterfully portrayed this dynamic in his novel Invisible Man from 1952. The young, nameless black protagonist astutely observed how others refused to see him. Quote, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe, nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am, an, I am a man of substance, flesh and bone, fiber and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. I'm invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it's as though I've been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When people approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, they see everything and anything except me." End quote. Twenty years ago, I had a friend who told me that his mother had married five times. At first I thought Mike was kidding, and I tittered with nervous laughter. When I realized that he was serious, I blanched at my insensitivity. Would that I had instead emulated the Apostle Paul, the consummate Christian insider, who in the epistle for this week 
contemplates the real and harrowing possibility of his own banishment to outsider perdition. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 And now for further reflection. When have you experienced exclusion or inclusion? And what factors were at play? Second, who was the most loving person that you know? Third, consider other biblical stories on this outsider-insider theme, like the story of the Good Samaritan or the six other stories that Spina treats. And for further reflection, in addition to the book by Frank Spina, The Faith of the Outsider, take a look at the book by Miroslav Volf, Exclusion and Embrace, a Theological Exploration of Identity, Otherness, and Reconciliation. My book review this week is of a book by John Cassian, The Institutes, translated and annotated by Boniface Ramsey, New York, The Newman Press, 2000, 287 pages. Like many early Christian writers, the life of John Cassian, who lived from 360 to 435, remained shrouded in the mists of forgotten history. He was probably born in present-day Romania. When he was about 20, he traveled with his friend Germanus to Bethlehem, where he joined a monastery. From Bethlehem, Cassian and Germanus made at least two extended visits to the famous monastics down in Egypt and by some estimates spent 10 years there. From there they moved on to Constantinople, where the bishop John Chrysostom ordained Cassian to the diaconate sometime around the year 400, at which time he traveled to Rome to courier some letters and was ordained a priest by Pope Innocent I. Cassian later settled in Marseille, where he founded two monasteries and wrote three books. His Institutes, along with its much larger companion volume entitled Conferences, chronicle the riches of early Egyptian monasticism, based upon his considerable personal experiences and acquaintances, and in so doing he transplanted that monastic influence to the West. Compared to the much longer Conferences, the Institutes is a simple book that's composed of two rather unrelated parts. In the first four books, Cassian describes the nature and symbolic significance of the monastic garb. He explains their regimen of day and night canonical prayers, and then provides a fascinating first-hand account, purportedly from Abba Panufius, about the reception of a new renunciate into the monastery. Then, books 5 to 12 analyze the eight principal vices, gluttony, fornication, avarice, anger, sadness, and asadia, a wearied or anxious heart that suggests close parallels to what today would pass for clinical depression. Then finally, vainglory and pride. Throughout the Institutes, Cassian contrasts the outward and external aspects of monasticism with the inner heart of a person that place where genuine transformation occurs. 
The collected wisdom of practical experience, as opposed to mere theory, informed monastic life. Cassian is also clearly eager to place himself in the mainstream of monastic tradition and to avoid minority opinions and practices. The opinion of a few, he writes, must not be preferred to, nor must it prejudice the common practice of all. Whether discussing a monk's ambition for clerical rank, the anger in one's heart that can flare even at an inanimate object like a dull penknife, or, or the horror of what he calls crushing sadness, Cassian can be a master of human observation and psychological insight, often mixed with humor. Here, for example, he describes the silence that characterized nighttime prayers. Quote, there is no spitting, no annoying clearing of throats, no noisy coughing, no sleepy yawning emitted from gaping and wide open mouths, no groans, and not even any sighs to disturb those in attendance. End quote. Although every person, place, time, and culture is different, and so the externals of habits and practices rightly differ. The goal of these monastics that remains fixed for us today is what is called the perfection of apostolic love. Elsewhere, Cassian uses the language of human health and wholeness as when he refers to, quote, integrity of heart, end quote, or, quote, a state of integral health, end quote. In reading Cassian's firsthand accounts of some of the earliest and most famous monks, one is humbled by their zeal of renunciation as they explore just what the words of Jesus mean in Matthew chapter 10, verse 38. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. The Institutes by John Cassian For film this week, I review Grizzly Man from the year 2005. About the nicest thing you can say about Timothy Treadwell is that he was a controversial person who, along with his girlfriend, Amy Huguenard, died a senseless, tragic death when they were mauled by grizzly bears in Alaska's Katmai National Park in October 2003. Even more gruesome, his camera recorded the audio, but not the video of the mauling. You'll be disappointed if you watch this documentary to learn anything about grizzly bears, but if you view it as a commentary about human nature, both your own and the film's subject, it's rather fascinating. Timothy Dexter, he later changed his last name and cultivated an Australian accent, spoke about the work, quote-unquote, he did on his summer expeditions among grizzlies. But he was anything but a scientist, nor did he leave any papers or field diaries that advanced scientific knowledge. He boasted about protecting the bears from humans and styled himself an environmentalist or a preservationist, but many argued that he harmed the grizzly population by habituating them to humans with his overfamiliarity with them. Treadwell spent 13 summers from 1991 to 2003 with the grizzlies. Nowhere, for example, do we learn what he did during the other nine months of the year. Over the last five years, he and or Huguenard shot over a hundred hours of amateur video. Some of the film's scenery then is spectacular. 
but 100 hours of video shot over roughly 500 days is not much. And at least 50% of this film comes from director Werner Herzog, not Treadwell. So Treadwell can hardly be thought of as a naturalist photographer either, despite his claim that he was that too. Still, he had his 15 minutes of fame as an eccentric grizzly man on David Letterman's show. Treadwell was a college dropout who moved from New York to California, where he failed as an actor. By his own description in the film, he descended into alcohol and drugs, and then as a deeply troubled loner, he found solace by living in the Alaskan wilderness all by himself, except for his beloved bears. Treadwell treated these wild animals as his best friends, and some have even speculated that he understood himself as more of a bear than a human being. He speaks tenderly to them, he pets them, he thanks them for being his friend, calls them each by names he's given to them, and in one scene he even lovingly fondles the fresh excrement of a bear and describes how wonderful it is that just a few minutes earlier it had been, been inside of Wendy. In another scene he cries when he discovers a dead bumblebee. To his credit, Herzog does not romanticize Treadwell, and very early on we learn about his horrible death. He was decapitated, dismembered, and digested by the bear, as the stomach contents that were retrieved a day later showed. Herzog interviews a number of people who knew Treadwell, including a former girlfriend, park officials, and bush pilots who helped retrieve the remains. Grizzly Man evoked in me a sort of Freudian voyeurism about the worst sort of death imaginable. But in the end, I was filled with sadness about a misfit who was so clearly alienated from all things human. Grizzly Man, from the year 2005. And finally this week, for poetry, we've posted the poem Tell It Slant by Emily Dickinson who lived from 1830 to 1886. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for minds in firm intent, the truth's suburb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. Tell It Slant by Emily Dickinson. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 12th, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay based upon the biblical lectionary, a book review, a film review, and a poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.